Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Thanks for joining us each week as we hear from God's Word and seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. John chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Welcome back to Term 3. It's nice to be back with you and nice to be digging into John's Gospel. We've just read John's introduction of God. Let me read to you from, well, someone else's thoughts about God. This is from a typical forum thread about God. You'll pick it up. From Lord XYZ. Okay, as an atheist, I shouldn't really make a thread up about what I believe our God is, but I'm sure some other atheists would agree with me on this. See, my God likes everything we do. That's why we can do it. The things my God doesn't want us to do are live without a brain, breathe liquid or solid, perform magic and anything else impossible. My God doesn't want us to worship him. She, he sees no point in it. My God doesn't want us to claim opinion as fact for that harms our intelligence and makes us delusional. My God does not want that. My God only made us. She, he isn't our leader or saviour and we shouldn't really care about him, her. Do you like my God? Note, this may have come out wrong, but if you're intelligent enough, you would probably realise what my God is. Are you feeling intelligent? All right, well, the next in the thread, TRH responds, my God is me. Jackson responds, my God is Santa Claus. And Lord Urizen responds, I think your God is sexy and it's getting a bit out of control, isn't it? Then we have strange love. The gods of all organised religions is a fallacy. Just like grammar, apparently. If there is a God, he, she, it wouldn't pay special attention to a small planet in a relatively small galaxy in all the vastness of the universe. In all likelihood, if there is a God, then he, she, it has no clue that we exist. And EIS says, what's the point of this thread? Good question. And then one more uh, more post. 
Dream Panther says, I like to think of God as an eternal watcher, somebody I can talk to when I need to, somebody who made me, somebody who gave me brains, blood and balls and who's cheering me on, hoping I fulfill all my dreams. Yet somebody wise enough to realize that the only way I can learn is to make mistakes. The same way a mummy or a daddy bird kicks their chick out of the nest. They have fed him and waited until he is old enough to survive, but at some stage he is either going to have to fly or die. What you do is up to you. What you do is up to you. How do you like to think about God? Maybe you've already blogged your own version of God. Maybe you've already created your own God in your own image. It's not hard to do, is it? Just sit at the keyboard, start speculating and go for it. I think the spirit of our age is kind of filled out in that last post. What you do is up to you. Apparently, when it comes to God, you do you. But I have a hunch that some of you might be a little dissatisfied with designing your own God. You know, DIY is okay if you're fixing a tap or, or making jewellery, but do you really want to put your trust in a God that you've built yourself? Today we're looking at what God is really like. We are not going to speculate and design our own God. We're going to look at how God truly is. And the only reason we can do that is because he has kindly revealed himself by entering into our history. So let's have a look at what God is really like. We're at point one, before everything. And grab your Bibles, first couple of verses, verses one and two. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. As John introduces God, he takes us right back to the creation of the world. The whole Bible, you might remember, begins with those same words, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. So the opening words of John's Gospel are riffing on those opening words of the whole Bible. John takes us all the way back to creation because he wants to introduce us to someone or something who was there. Now, of course, God was there, but John tells us that someone else or something else was also there. This word, or it's biblical Greek translation, you might know, logos. That was a big concept uh, in ancient Greek philosophy, actually. Uh, this logos in Greek philosophy was so much more than just how we think of a word. Now, we could go into a lot of detail digging into all the Greek philosophy. We could talk about how the Stoic philosophers thought of the logos as the rational principle by which everything exists. And, and, but John doesn't talk about this logos, this word, as just a, a principle. John talks about the word as a person. Uh, he. We could go into detail about how Plato believed in a distinction between the ideal world out there somewhere, which he called the Logos of God, and our real world here, which he believed was just a copy of that ideal Logos. But John doesn't set up that dualism of ideal and copy. John's Gospel speaks about one creation under God. Now, we could even go to other Greek philosophers as well who believed all kinds of other different things about this Logos word. But if we want to understand what John means by this Logos word, do you think ancient Greek philosophy is the place to go? Do you think John might have had somewhere else shaping his thinking about this concept? And if so, what is it? 
Here's the first chance to have a little chat with your group or with someone nearby about this question. We'll put it on the screen. Did John have a more readily accessible background from which to draw concepts? And if so, what was it? Two minutes, have fun. Does John have a more readily accessible background? Of course he does, and he's already hinted it to us, hasn't he, by alluding to those first words of the Old Testament. And John is going to go on to quote from the Old Testament extensively throughout his gospel. It's the Old Testament that gives us the background we need to understand this word. In the Old Testament, the Word of God is active in a number of spheres. Have a look at the screen. The Word of God is connected with God's power in creation. Psalm 33 verse 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. And the Word of God is connected with God's power to save people. From Psalm 107, He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And of course, the Word of God is connected with God's powerful revealing of Himself. We'll go to Jeremiah in this one. Uh, not Psalm 33 verse 6, it is actually Jeremiah 1 verses 4 and 5. Now the Word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's the Word of the Lord that does the revealing, isn't it? God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful expression of Himself in creation, in salvation, in revelation. But when John speaks about this Word being with God at creation, how is the Word with God? See, if this Word was there when God created our world, then either the, world, the Word was with God or the Word was God. They are the only two possibilities, aren't they? And John says yes to both of them. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now, it's worth remembering here that John is a Jewish man and as such he would have been fiercely monotheistic. John is not advocating two gods here, but he is stating two truths, important truths, about God that are completely true, but at the same time, they seem impossibly contradictory. The Word was with God, two unique beings in relationship, and yet the Word was God. That is, the Word and God are the same. Now, if you're struggling to get your head around this profound concept, well, congratulations, you're perfectly normal. The Trinity, one God in three persons, that is hard to get your human head around. But does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that you cannot simply understand and then pigeonhole the eternal God who created the universe? Surely that should not surprise us that God is somewhat beyond our comprehension. And that is exactly why God came in the flesh to reveal himself to us. You can't understand God through your own logic or through your own intelligence. But God can reveal himself to us by entering into our history. Now, the big old elephant in the room is that you normally use a different name to address the being that John calls the Word. Now, John knows that name and he's going to use it. But he's not going to use it until right down near the end of this introduction in verse 17. 
And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus was the name given to the word when he became flesh and was born as a human. But that was not the beginning of his existence. John wants us to see that this being called the word has always existed with God, has always been God. And yet at a very important time in our history, that word being who was God humbled himself to being born as a human baby. And at that point, he was given the name Jesus. So we've seen that Jesus existed before he was a man. But John also wants to show us that his existence was crucial for our existence. So we're at point two, his existence and ours. And have a look at verse three. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now back in Genesis one, it was clear that everything was created by God's word. But what John one verse three is saying is that that word of God through which God created everything was actually the pre-existing Jesus. Everything that exists owes its existence to Jesus. And that means you owe your existence to Jesus. Jesus is the source of your life. And that's what verse four is saying. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And it's not just that Jesus created life. This verse is saying more than that, isn't it? That life is lived in Jesus. In him is life. If you have life, you only have it because life exists in Jesus. Now, I thought I'd try to illustrate this for you. <coughs> and my best illustration is the difference in art between a still life painting and performance art. You know, performance art like a mime or, or, or a dance or something like that. It's very different to still life painting. <coughs> Excuse me. When an artist paints a still life painting, at the end, the artist can put down their brush and can walk away and that art still exists while the artist can go far, far away. But a performance artist like a dancer or a mime, they can never walk away from their artwork. A performance artist is the artwork. The artwork only exists while the performance artist is performing. Jesus is to life what the performance artist is to performance art. Jesus didn't just create life and then walk away. Life is still in Jesus. Life will continue tomorrow if Jesus continues to sustain life. Without Jesus, there is no life. And because life is in Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that later in John's gospel, Jesus is the one who offers life to people in the grip of death. And once we understand this, that life is in Jesus, John goes on to say in verse four, that this life was the light of men. And we need to work out what life has to do with light. Now in the Bible, you probably know that light is usually an image for revelation, for understanding. John is saying that the source of life is also the source of revelation. The one in whom life exists is the one who reveals God and enlightens the world. And that's where the light and darkness in verse five come into play. Have a look at verse five. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. 
Darkness, well, it's a universal image for evil. In John's Gospel, that's no different. Darkness in John's Gospel is a metaphor for sinful humanity against God. The world, according to John's Gospel, is darkened by unbelief in God and rebellion against the Creator. The world is in spiritual darkness. And God's answer to spiritual darkness is to send the light. But what would you expect when light collides with darkness? What would you expect to happen? There's going to be confrontation, isn't there? Darkness does not like light because light drives out darkness. And that confrontation, we're going to watch it grow all the way through John's Gospel. The darkness of unbelief and opposition is going to continue against Jesus the light all the way until it reaches the great showdown at the cross. The cross is the final battle between darkness and light. And at first glance, it looks as though darkness wins. If you had have been there, looking at Jesus hanging crucified, dead on a cross, you would have naturally assumed that the darkness had won. But John 1 verse 5 reminds us that the darkness has not overcome the light. Yes, Jesus has given his life even to death on a cross. He's died as a sacrifice for the sins of many. Yes, but the darkness has not won. At the cross, light won. Jesus triumphed by his death and was vindicated through his resurrection to life again. Now, you can read the eyewitness accounts of that victory. And in fact, the witnesses are going to play a pretty important role in John's Gospel too. So we're at point three, the witness. And it's really interesting. I don't know whether you noticed it as we read through the passage before. The first man named in John's introduction is not Jesus. Have a look. Verses six to eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Well, the big question is, why is John the Baptist pushing in here before we've even met Jesus? This gospel has started out in eternity where the word was always with God and was always God. And we've seen all that cosmic big picture stuff. And we know that we are heading for the exciting touchdown where the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. So why the anticlimax of John in here, in between? Why is John the Baptist getting in the way here? Here's another chance for you to have a chat in your group. There's the question. Why is John the Baptist getting in the way here? What do you think? Enjoy the chat. Well, it must be important that John the Baptist has the key role of making sure that Jesus is clearly identified. It must be important to put him in here. John's job was to make sure that that pre-existent word, the light, was clearly identified. John had that very important role of bearing witness to Jesus so that people might believe in him. Now, what is this witnessing all about? Well, what does a witness do? A witness testifies to the truth. And the truth that John is testifying about is that Jesus is the light, the revelation of God that the world has been waiting for. In John's gospel, 
This theme of witnessing is really big. There are a number of different witnesses in John's Gospel that testify to this really important truth about Jesus. John the Baptist is obviously the first witness very early on. But then we find Jesus' works, his miracles, are spoken of as witnesses testifying to the truth about Jesus. Then it's, it's God the Father who testifies to the truth about Jesus. After that, it's the scriptures who bear witness to Jesus. And finally, in John 15, Jesus says that the disciples themselves will also bear witness to Jesus after his death and resurrection. Now, why is this witnessing so important? Well, it can be pretty bad when you don't clearly identify someone. You can really mess things up. When I was young and single, I went to a new hairdresser for the first time. She was uh, fairly pretty and uh, that's probably why I was getting my hair cut there. And as she was cutting away, she asked me if I'd like to read a magazine. I, uh, I love surfing and so I said, yeah, do you have a surfing magazine? She said, no, but she said, oh look, I've got a jet ski magazine. Would you like to have a look? I was pretty disappointed, but I started flicking through. And anyway, I, uh, I came to the, the middle page of the magazine, a, a double page photo of a big black jet ski with um, a girl in a bikini sort of draped over it. Now, I, I was a sensitive new age guy and I wanted to demonstrate that to my hairdresser. So I held up the picture and said, oh, I don't know, typical bimbo. She looked down at me and said, that's me. I said, what? She said, that's me in the picture. And I had a closer look and it was her. I couldn't believe it. It's my first time at this new hairdresser and I've just called her a bimbo and she's holding scissors right behind my head. Clear identification is quite important, isn't it? So that you don't make awkward mistakes. The witnesses are about clearly identifying Jesus. But clear identification does not necessarily guarantee good reception. And so we're at point four, rejecting or receiving. Grab your Bibles, verses 9 to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Even though Jesus was clearly identified, he was also clearly rejected. The world did not know him. That sounds fairly innocent, doesn't it? The world did not know him. But it wasn't just a recognition problem. It was a rebellion problem. In John's gospel, the world is not innocent and neutral. The world is a term that describes rebellious humanity. The world is humanity united against God. The world did not know Jesus because the world has turned its back on God. But that is not the worst of it. Did you see verse 11 tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Who were Jesus' own people? John is talking about the nation Israel, God's own chosen people. That Jewish rejection theme starts here in chapter 1 and it too is going to grow and grow in every chapter of John's Gospel until the ultimate rejection at the cross. But don't go getting all anti-Semitic about this. That Jewish rejection was all part of God's plan of salvation. Jewish rejection of Jesus all the way to the cross was God's great plan to save 
both Jewish people and everyone else, Gentile people too, through the cross. You have the opportunity to put your trust in the death of Jesus today because in God's great plan, Jesus was rejected by his own people all the way to the cross. Let's keep reading verses 12 and 13. <coughs> but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To receive Jesus, it's to believe in his name, to believe that he is the long-awaited Christ King. To receive Jesus is to trust that he is God's chosen Saviour and King and to accept him as your Saviour and King. And to all who do receive Jesus, the promise is that Jesus gives the right to become part of the family. I have a friend who was adopted at a young age into a wonderful family. It's interesting to hear her speak about her adoption. I once asked her how she feels about being adopted and her response really stunned me. She said, most people, most children are not personally chosen. I was personally chosen. It's beautiful, isn't it? My friend has grown up in a great family. She's enjoyed five brothers and sisters. She's enjoyed the kindness of a loving mother and father. She has loved her adopted family and she now shares their faith in Jesus. She understands verse 12 better than you and me. Don't ever underestimate the privilege of this right to be adopted, chosen into God's family through Jesus. Well, we're at point five, when God became one of us. And let's have a look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word who is God and who has been with God since the beginning took on flesh to live amongst us. God took on kneecaps, nostrils, a spleen and that little wobbly thing that hangs down the back of your throat. God humbled himself and became flesh so that he could dwell amongst people like us. That word dwell in the original Greek language literally means to pitch a tent. That's the kind of dwelling we're talking about. It's a word that would remind first century Jewish people of the great tent, the great tabernacle in which God dwelt in the past. God has always been with his people. But as John, <coughs> as John introduces us to the word who becomes flesh, we see in Jesus that God is with his people in a more personal way than ever before. And when God put on flesh, he lost none of his glory. John says we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When God's glory is on view in the Old Testament, it's almost always associated with his character. God's glory shines through characteristics like grace and truth, like, like perfect love and perfect justice. Jesus, the man, displayed all the glory of God in that same character of grace, truth, and all those other things like perfect love and perfect justice. But that perfect love and perfect justice thing, isn't that perfect justice a bit problematic for sinners like you and me? When I think about my sin, I'm not sure I want God to treat me justly. That sounds pretty bad. 
How can sinners like you and me relate to a God of perfect justice and perfect love? The answer is that little word grace. Have a listen for it in verses 15 and 16. <coughs> John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now you probably know that the word grace literally means undeserved kindness. Grace is getting something good that you do not deserve. And that is exactly what Jesus is offering. But did you notice in verse 16 that John says, from Jesus we receive grace upon grace. What is grace upon grace? Well, it could mean grace in return for grace. But how could you and I offer any grace to Jesus so that he might give grace back to us? It can't be that. It could mean grace on top of grace. So in that sense, it would be like wave after wave of grace. Now, that certainly sounds a little bit more like what we receive from Jesus. But I think in the context of verse 17, there is still one better option. That little word can also mean in the place of grace, in the place of grace. The covenant relationship between Israel and God in the Old Testament was still a relationship which required the grace of God. But now in Jesus, we have the ultimate experience of God's grace. It wasn't as though God's grace wasn't there in the Old Testament, but now we have grace in the place of grace in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17 interprets it for us. Let's have a look. Verse 17. For the, <coughs> for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When God gave his people his law through Moses, it was still, it was, it was a gracious thing to do, wasn't it? That he would invite sinful people to have a relationship with him that was bound by that law. But now, Jesus coming into the world brings a whole new way of receiving God's grace. And that new way is all about God being knowable through a relationship with Jesus. So we're at our last point today, verse, uh, point six, God is now knowable. And let's read the last verse of our introduction, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus hasn't just given us little snippets about God, has he? What you have in Jesus is the whole story, the full picture of God. This verse is telling us what we should expect to find as we read through the rest of John's gospel. This gospel <coughs> is about Jesus giving us the full picture of God. Because Jesus who is, is the one who has been with God, the only one who has seen God, the only one who has come from the Father's side, he can give us the complete picture about God. And that means that you and I don't need to speculate about God. We don't need to guess about what God is like. Jesus has given us the complete picture. And if you have the full picture, it's actually offensive to keep speculating. See, we'd never be rude enough to treat each other like that. Can you imagine if you were so kind as to introduce yourself to me and to speak to me, tell me a little bit about yourself? And then can you imagine if after you'd shown me that kindness, 
I was rude enough to turn around and say, oh, that was Matthew. I like to think of Matthew as a pot plant. We'd never do it to each other. We wouldn't like to be treated that way. Why do we think that we can treat God that way? Why do we think that we, we are entitled to speculate wildly about what God is like if God has gone out of his way to reveal himself completely to us? We need to stop speculating. We need to stop making God in our own image. We need to let God be God and respond to him as he truly is. God has not just made himself visible. God has made himself knowable. God has not just turned up to be seen. Jesus has come so that God can be known by you. How are you going to respond? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Reject or receive. They are the only two options. What will it be for you? Let's pray. <coughs> Our Father God, thank you so much that you haven't left us in the dark. You have revealed yourself to us so that we can know what you are like. And not just know what you are like, but actually come to know you personally in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Thanks so much for Jesus, who was with you and was you in the beginning, and yet willingly became a human in order to die for us so that we could be forgiven for our sin and know you personally. Thank you that you offer to adopt us into your family. Please help us to receive Jesus and to enter into your family and be securely one of your children. Please help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, well, come and join, join us, Carl, please. please. Thanks, Thanks for, for sharing, sharing in God's, God's Word with us. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, it's yeah, really it's helpful. Really and what a what privilege it is that we are, uh, can to know God, God through His, his Word. So thanks, thanks for helping us think a little bit more about, about that. that. And, and well, if you wouldn't mind, mind, we're going to continue, continue thinking about it together. together. So a few good questions. Great. So just a little bit of a breather for you. But we're thinking about what we've read in this opening chapter of John. And, and one of the one things, of the things that, that came up first that, that uh, people were interested in, in just exploring a little bit further is, is it, does it does start with the words, not specifically Jesus, mm -hmm. being talked about as being God and being with God and, and just that, that uh, kind of that, that interesting way of putting it. Can, can we be sure that, that it's saying that, that Jesus is God? Is God? That, that was one of the questions. Now, is this a place where we'd sort of want to hang our hat on, on saying, yes, this is where we get confirmation or clarity that Jesus is God? Good. Yes, yes we, can. we can be sure. But rather than just one verse, we actually need to see the flow of the whole passage because very importantly is as the word becomes flesh in verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. So the word is clearly identified there mm -hmm. as the son of the father. And that's that same word that's uh, in verse one, who was with God and was God. So yes, we can have absolute certainty, but we can't just proof text one verse there. We've got to see what the whole passage is doing. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's really, really helpful. helpful. But it's just, I guess it, it, we get that question raised here because it's so 
it's so tight that connection between Jesus yeah. and God right from the beginning. Yep. So it's that's uh, really great. So it's a great question. Uh, another question is you've talked we've talked a lot about uh, God making Himself known today. I wonder if a helpful question is can we know everything then about God? Is that the kind of knowableness that we've wow, been given? What a, what a good question. question. I love it because um, it really pushes us to think how we can know anything about God. We can, we can know as much about God as God is willing to reveal of himself. Now, how much has God revealed of himself really then becomes the question. And in turning up as a human and living amongst us, he revealed an incredible amount of what he is truly like. So we, uh, we, you know, we lived in the wrong zone to actually see him in the flesh. And that's probably good news for you because most of the people who did see him in the flesh rejected him and crucified him. So you live now when you can look back and you've got the reliable eyewitness accounts. You can know a lot about God so that you can make a wise decision not to reject him, but to receive him. Yep. You can know as much about God as he's willing to reveal and he's revealed plenty. Yeah, we, it's revealed everything we need to know. It's kind of a, perhaps it's not, uh, and I, I felt, I appreciated your encouragement to not speculate, but rather to know what we can know. So that's really helpful. And a question that we uh, had sent in as well in the text, I'll just grab it up here, is about uh, what we read at the, near the end of this section about Moses coming up in the law. Mm. So in, Moses, in uh, verse 16 and 17, I can read them for us if you like. Uh, can we explain a little bit more about how the Old Testament law was God's grace? That's, mm. That seems to be a, bit of a, a surprising thing to say in some way, but um, it seems to be contrasted here. So the question is, wasn't it a list of rules that condemned the Jewish people to show that they were sinful? Yeah. Yeah. The place, the place to, go. to go to check out the answer to this question is Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. You might know that Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments begin in a sense, um, a whole lot of God's law, chapters and chapters of God's law, but they, they are not where God begins. God begins in Exodus 19 by reminding the Israelites about how he saved them out of slavery in Egypt mm -hmm. and brought them on eagles' wings through the desert to this place and where he is, is kindly and graciously now entering, entering into, a perf into a relationship with them where he's willing to be their personal God, the God of, of Israel. And uh, they say that they are willing to be his people. And he says, if, if that's what you want to do, then this is how it will be lived out in, in the law that he sets down. Now, there's a whole lot of purpose for the law that's not, you know, it, it, in a sense, no human, no mere human could ever keep God's law well enough to establish a right relationship with God for themselves. Mm -hmm. We needed Jesus to come and do that. And so, in a sense, the law... Um, pushes you to Jesus, maybe even restrains you until Jesus comes. There's, there's so much about that law. But make no mistake, the law is the graciousness of God. God didn't have to enter into a personal relationship with any people, with any country. And yet in his grace, he kindly takes on this little nation, this little tin pot nation, Israel, and says, I'll be your personal God and you be my people. And this is how I want you to live. Um, it is grace, but it's, uh, it's not a grace that, uh, in a sense, can cover sin. Mm. That is the grace that we find only in Jesus. So it's grace in place of grace, I think, is the, is the right way to understand the verse in John 1, uh, 17. 17. Um, Are you thinking the grace? Uh, no, no, grace. Grace upon grace. Grace, grace, grace in 16. Yeah. Okay. As yeah. in, you're getting yeah. the idea that 
Um, it's, it, it wouldn't have been grace if it was just something that condemned Israel. But in but fact, in fact it, it, it did more. It didn't just do that. In a sense, it brought grace upon that. The, it's sort of nature of being something that was waiting for something to come. Or? Well, well it was grace that God entered into a relationship with Israel. Yeah. It was even more grace and more accessible grace that we can enter into a relationship with God through Jesus. Grace in the place of grace is the way I'm going to put it. Yeah. So it's, so it's not, not that it's untrue to say that it condemned Israel for their sinfulness. It did do that. The law, the law did. But, did, but it's, it's, you're focusing, focusing on, on it. It was a relational thing to begin with yep. first. It's, yep. it's entering into a relationship and that itself is special. Yeah, that's God's grace. And yet, mm. graciously, there's more grace that comes through or different grace that replaces that. You and, you and I, through Jesus, have the opportunity not to sabotage our relationship with God through law-keeping failure through our sin. That's the grace that has been given in place of the Old Testament grace that, that was built on law. One more question I think we'll squeeze in before we leave you for today. Verse 13. Uh, we would, uh, verse 12 talked about uh, being children of God and the privilege that that is through Jesus. But 13 kind of hinted at the, maybe the mechanism mm, in a way, yep, or yep. you could maybe describe that. Those who are born uh, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's like kind of how. Our question we had was, what does the will of the flesh and the will of man refer to? And what's the difference between those two things? And why, why are they, are they mentioned, mentioned, I guess, yeah. yeah, I think, I think um, all the phrases in, in that verse are getting at the same thing. Um, that basically you, you could replace all of them by saying normal birth. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, the normal birth is not the way you enter into a relationship with God. So adoption is a much better way of thinking about it. It's an abnormal entry into a family mm. that's on view. So the will of man or the will of God, um, so where are so we? It is, it's through the will of flesh yep. or the will of man. They're kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think they even need to be referring to a different thing. Yeah. Um, they probably have a nuance in the original language. Um, one might be a little bit more passion, desire kind of idea, will of the flesh. Uh, will of man is a little bit more perhaps family, familial. Um, I'd say that's what's going on there. But they're all saying the same thing. It's not the normal way you enter a family. Being part of God's family, you need to be adopted, chosen by God, brought in through Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. It's really f it's kind of expanding on the normal ways, but really focusing in on the privilege, again, that it is to be brought into God's family through by him, not by anything That's of right. our own. Yeah. Right. yeah. Thanks, Carl. Well, I might uh, lead us in prayer as we, as we finish. And so why don't I do that? Father God, we do give you great praise and thanks that you have revealed yourself to us in your word in Jesus and that we can be challenged by these things um, today as, as we've heard from your word. And we do pray that you would help us know who he is truly Jesus, and that we might uh, know our need to receive him. And pray that this word of, that you've spoken to us today would uh, continue to dwell, we would dwell on it, and it would um, help us to respond to you rightly. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, we'll be back at it again next week, so please join us then. We're going to be thinking about the next part of John under the title, If Only God Would Give Me a Sign. 
So we hope we can join us then again next week. And don't forget to leave it, let us know that you're here and ask any other questions you might have. Uh, let us know any comments about how you found today or leave us things that we could be praying for for you at um, the TPT slip so you could do that for us. See you next week. See ya. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.